Well, let's go ahead and let's pray, and then we will spend some time in the Word this morning. So let's go ahead and let's, let's pray. Dear Gracious Father, we are once again so very thankful for your love and your mercy and your grace that you've lavished upon us. And we are so very thankful that you sent Jesus to come and die on the cross for our sins. We are so very thankful for your word. We're so very thankful for a church family that we can come and we can fellowship with one another. We can sing songs and we can open up your word and that your spirit will lead us and teach us and guide us. And we just ask for your spirit's wisdom, your spirit's guidance, uh, that the word would be illumined to us, that you would cause us to see the truth from the text, and then also for us to see uh, areas that we need to change in our thinking and in our lives. We're so very thankful, so very, very thankful for all that you've given us and all the promises that are ours in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you and love you in your son's name. Amen. Well, I was, this morning, I was putting the finishing touches on my sermon, and uh, I use a particular Bible software called Logos that may mean something to some of you, to others, you go, okay. And uh, I was just thinking through the process of, of how I put together sermons, and I was thinking about the reading of the sermon, and you know, the reading of the text, and so I read, and I see the big picture, and then what I do is I, I have a special uh, thing on my Bible software that opens up all these uh, language helps for the original language and all the different dictionaries and lexicons. And I do some word searches and see other times that that word's used in the Old Testament. And then what I'll do is I'll uh, look for cross-references. Uh, I'll use a, a resource called the uh, Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. If you don't have it, you need to get it. It's an incredible resource. And then I'll look at some cultural things, and I'll spend some time looking at commentaries. And then I have this, this section on my Logos where I have all these systematic theologies, all the way back to uh, the church fathers, to like a book written yesterday, all different flavors, right, all different. And I just type in this, I type in a Bible reference of the verse I'm looking at, and I look at these systematic theologies and what they, what they say. And a lot of times, I'll get maybe 10, 5 to 10 different hits where uh, over the 2,000 years, someone has commented about this verse in some context, and sometimes it's great. It's right on, and, uh, you know, sometimes the Methodists get it right. And so you just go, hey, amen, we're going to use it. When I typed in the passage that we're going to do today, I had over 50 references, and not just 50 references like it was like in a verse chain. Like, we're talking people spent paragraphs and paragraphs from church history talking about the passage we're going to talk about today. So to say that the text that we're about ready to talk about has a lot of theological implication, yeah, it has tons, mountains, and mountains so this morning, we're just going to go over one verse, right? And even, even what we're going to do this morning is not even close to capturing the subject. So go with me to Proverbs 21. It's going to be in verse 1. This morning, we're going to look at the sovereignty of God. 
We're going to talk about God is sovereign. He's in control. He's in control over us. He has power and authority over us. That's it. And he controls us. Okay, so allow me to read this. Proverbs 21, 1. And it says, And the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Now, we're in the section of Proverbs, starting from chapter 11, and we're going all the way to chapter 27, where Solomon is comparing and contrasting the wise and the fool. And what he says is the wise person does this, a foolish person does that. So we've seen that, right, over and over again, this comparison. In this section in chapter 21, there is a really big question that's being asked that Solomon is going to answer. And, and the issue that's being asked is this, is who gets to determine what someone does? Who, who's the one that has the right to say, this is what I get to do. This is what I'm going to do. And what you find in chapter 21 is that the righteous submit to God and the fool is an open rebellion to God. And so you'll see all these different scenarios in 21 dealing with the subject of submission by the wise to God and to his word, and then the fool is rebellious to God's law and to God's word. And so the question would be, why should any of us ever be submissive to God? And the first answer that's given, or the first principle that's given, is found here in chapter 21, verse 1. God's sovereign. You don't have a choice. Why should you submit to God? Because that's it. What else are you going to do? He, he's the only one to submit to. You, you, have, you have no other option. Right? So let's kind of walk through this and look at some of this. Notice what Solomon says here in the first. He says, the king's heart We've seen this phrase heart before. We've seen the phrase heart, and it means that part of you that is immaterial, that people can't see, right? It's your, what you treasure, what you value, who you are on the inside, right? It talks about purposes and plans. So, so it talks about a king's purpose, plan, who he is, who he really is, what, kind of, what, what makes him go, why he does what he does, all of that, right? And then by adding on the king's heart, in the ancient world, this would be far more significant than in ours. As an American, we don't have kings. So the concept of a king is actually kind of odious to us, right? What is, there's not going to be some guy who's born in some castle somewhere that's going to tell me what to do. We as Americans believe that we're all, that, that we together make up the sovereignty of, of the government. But back in the ancient world, the king was the guy. He was the most powerful guy. What he said happened, happens. He had uh, ability to do things that no one else was able to do. He had authority that no one else could have. When a king told you to jump, while you're in the air, you should be asking, how high? Is this high enough? Absolute control. The king had absolute control. So just think of that. With that cultural context... The king has absolute control. His desire is the desire of the kingdom. He controls what men do. But notice what Solomon says. He says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. Now, some, when they see this word stream, 
they look at, at the word, and the word does mean irrigation canal. That, that's what it means, or it means flowing water. And so what some people say is, well, God's just this great engineer. And what he does is he kind of goes out, and he looks at a water, he looks at a river. It's not tamed, so what does he do? He dams it up. He builds these nice irrigation ditches so that the water may go there and it might water the crop. And so what this is talking about is God's desire for the king. And God kind of is a really good guesser at what would be really helpful for the rest of the society. And and he just is digging ditches, right? And as he's doing that, water may or may not come. And that's what happens. So God kind of directs. He, he, he kind of directs. He doesn't force. He kind, of, he kind of invites. He kind of invites people. Kind of opens up the door, says, if you want to come in, that would be great. That sounds nice, doesn't it? But that's not what it says here. Notice what it says. It says, the king's heart is a stream of water in his hand. It's not he moves the, heart, the king like streams of water. It's, the, the analogy is the heart is the water, and where's the water? It's in his hand. I think if we were to have a modern-day equivalent, it would be the king is like putty in the hands of the Lord. That, that's really the equivalent here. has the idea that God has control over that. It's in his hand. He has complete, total control, absolute power. Now, in the ancient world, this would have been shocking. You mean the, the most powerful guy I know has got to serve someone else? He's not the ultimate potentate? He's not the ultimate? There's someone above him? There's someone that, that, that he has to serve? So as a king, if there was ever a king and he was reading this, he would automatically go, God is far above me. But just think of the comparison. Think about this, of a puddle of water in your hand you have control over that. You have power over that. You get to do with it whatever you want. You are, that's the comparison, right? You're like putty. There's no resistance. Whatever you desire to do doesn't really matter. There's one who is far more powerful, far outranks you. This idea of God far outranking man is one of those fundamental ideas that we have in Christianity, it starts from the very beginning. He's our creator. goes through all the way through. We demonstrate that Jesus Christ is the king of kings. What does that mean? It means he's the king over kings. He tells kings what to do. He has the right and the authority to rule over them. But it goes even deeper than that, doesn't it? Not just that he has the right and authority to rule them. That he gets to be the one that determines... You go here, you go here. The image goes a little bit deeper, doesn't it? Because Solomon adds one other point. Notice what he says. And he says, and he turns it wherever he will. This means what? That God not only has the right to turn the heart of the king, he not only has the power to do so, but he actively does do so. That, that's the only way you can read this. In fact, I tried it this morning. I put water in my hand while I was in the shower. And I was able to move that water wherever I wanted it to go. I could turn it this way. I turn it this way. I turn it that way. 
the water didn't put up a fight, right? It went where I turned it to go. I determined which way it went. That is the heart of a king. Now, if we think about this, the king is the most powerful, the greatest authority in a society. So if the greatest one is simply just water in the hands of God, then that means then that every single one of us also are like water in the hands of God. He is sovereign over us. He has power and control over us. Absolutely. Now, I'm sure this brings up a lot of questions. A lot of questions, a lot of tension, a lot of, we need to figure some things out. But before we do that, I think it is incredibly, incredibly important that we just look briefly at what the scripture has to say about the sovereignty of God. Because we don't want to start from, well, that doesn't seem fair from my point of view. Therefore, let me try to figure out from my point of view what it is. That's not how we do this. We start from God's word. What does God's word say? If I have anything that is contrary to that, well, then I need to submit to God's word. That's, that's what wise people do. And, and this principle of the sovereignty of God is such an important principle for us in our life. Think about during the time of COVID. If I didn't believe in a sovereign God who was in control and was powerful and was causing things to work together to the summing up of all things under Christ, if I didn't have that foundation, I would go crazy. We saw a society that didn't have that go nuts. Why did they go nuts? Because they didn't have that firm foundation on which they could rest, that God is powerful and in control. This is an important doctrine that is stated from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. Right? So when we think about the sovereignty of God and his power and his control, the scripture has a lot to say. Allow me just to read this. I'm just going to throw out a whole bunch of scripture references. If you want them, I can email them to you. But There's no way you're going to be able to write them down because I want you to see how much the Bible says on this subject. I want you to just sit back and go, oh, there is a lot. So, for example, God is control over the physical universe. Did you know that? He's in control of all of it. Matthew 5, what does it say? He's in control of the sun and the rain. Psalm 147, he's in control of the wind. Job 38, he's in control of the lightning. In 1 Samuel 7, he's in control of the thunder. In Psalm 147, of water and movement of water. In Psalm 148, he's in control of hail. In Job 37, he's in control of ice. In Job 37, he's also in control of snow and, you guessed it, frost. We also find out from Job, he places mountains where he wants them to be, and he moves mountains when he doesn't want them to be there. We also realize that every time there's an earthquake, guess who's the cause of it? God's the one who causes the earthquake. He's also the one that causes things to grow in the earth. Not us, not my ability to till the ground. In fact, I'll be honest with you, I lived in Wyoming. Nothing grows in Wyoming except on the rocks. Have you ever seen that? I can't get anything to grow in the best dirt. God can cause plants to grow out of rocks. It was amazing. He does that. Not me, not you. He does it. Not only that, but guess what? He's in control of all the stars. He's in control of the moon, the movement of the earth. He's also in control over all the plants and all of the animals, right? Every single living creature is in the hand of God, we're told by Job. 
God also controls plants. Remember Jonah? Remember the account of Jonah where he caused a plant to grow overnight? Do that. You can't. He can. He just says happen and it happens. Then what did he do after that? He caused what to happen? A worm to come and eat it. Can you do that? Can you command worms? He commands beasts. He commands birds. He commands fish. Remember that account where Peter and Jesus had to pay that tax at the temple and they didn't have any money? So Jesus says, go out and catch a fish and that fish has a coin in its mouth? Do that one. You can't. God, think about all of the things that have to happen for a fish to swallow a coin and then for you to catch that exact fish at the exact time that you need it to pay a tax when you don't have any money. How does that happen? Luck? Chance? No, a sovereign God orchestrated all of that together. Not only does he do that, but if we think about big things that happen on earth... Romans 13, this is what it says there. It says, there is no authority except from God. And all those which exist are established by God. He puts them in charge. Whether you like it or not, whether you voted for him or not, whether you think it was stolen or not, guess what? God rigged it. He's the one who determines. Right? Then, then in Psalm 22, he rules over the nations. Job, once again, we find out that God destroys nations and and causes other ones to grow up. We also see this in Daniel chapter 2, right? When Nebuchadnezzar comes to his senses, what does he say? God's the one who raises kingdoms and he destroys kingdoms. He sets boundaries. We learn about this in Acts 17, right? God determines not only where a kingdom should be and its boundaries and those boundaries as they constantly change, but how long they keep those boundaries and how long they're under that particular jurisdiction not only that but we see several times several times where he uses kings to do things which are not in their best interest for his own glory right think of pharaoh he hardened pharaoh's heart now let's think about what he does for man and the sovereignty he has over man did you know that god was actively involved before you were born Right? We learn about this in Psalm 139. We learn about this in Jeremiah. You know that he works on us and he causes us to grow. He provides for our needs. Right? Doesn't Jesus talk about that in Matthew 5? Is not the sparrow more important than you? And God's concerned about every single hair that you have on your head. Or lack of. What does Deuteronomy 23 say? What does John 21, 19 say? says that we don't get to determine the time or circumstance of our own death. Who determines that? God's the one who determines that. He's sovereign over that. He's sovereign over circumstances of failures, right? It's the Lord that causes someone to be promoted and someone to be demoted. He's the one who causes princes to to be thrown down and, and those who are underneath him to be raised up. It's the Lord who makes people rich and he makes them poor. It is he who gives them the ability to talk or not talk, to be lame or not be lame. He's involved in every single thought process. As we see here, the heart is controlled and turned by the Lord. Think about this, even trivial matters. Remember in 16, let's go to that Proverbs 16. Remember this passage in verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. That seems trivial, doesn't it? I throw a dice 
and its decision is from the Lord. That seems incredibly trivial. It's not. It's from the Lord as well, right? The, the Lord determines that. There's even times where we see where God withholds sleep from someone, causes them not to be able to sleep. Think about Esther, right? Remember when the king, just on, right before a big decision, he can't sleep, ironically, and then ironically, the Lord moves in his heart to go and read what's happened in the courtroom, and he hears about Mordecai, right? And then just by some happenstance, Haman walks in while, while he's talking about Mordecai, right? All that just happened, right? Are we to suggest that God had no part to play in that? He had everything to do with that. As the believer, we read in 1 Peter that he cares for us sovereignly. We see that he protects us. He gives us safety. He gives us what's good. Philippians, what does Paul tell us? That he provides for all of our needs. Go with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Notice what he says here. Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. By the way, uh, verse 3 to verse 14 is just one sentence. Now, our English might break it up because, let's be honest, that would be an incredibly long sentence to read, right? So the translators help us out, okay? But in, in the Greek, it's one. And verse 3 is the main subject of the sentence, right? So what it's talking about is what God has blessed us with. The whole idea of God blessing, the whole idea of him blessing someone is not because of who that person is they receive this blessing. That, that, That blessing is given to us on the basis of his grace, And the reason that we know that it's on the basis of his grace is because of how many times Paul uses this phrase, in him, in him, in him, in him. Meaning that this is not on the basis of me or on the basis of my ability or my merit, but this is done solely on the basis and will of him. It's done because I'm in him. It's because of him, right? So God has blessed us. And notice what it says, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I love that. Don't you? Isn't that a great encouragement this morning? God has given you these incredible blessings, and they're yours right now. You don't have to do anything for them. They're yours. And Paul talks about some of these. These are yours. You might not feel it. You might not see it. There was no light bulb that flashed when it happened, but these are yours. You don't have to earn it. They were given to you, lavished upon you at the moment that God caused you to be born again, right? They were just lavished on you, given to you. They They were showered upon you as a believer. So when we talk about the grace of God, these are the things that happen. And notice what Paul focuses on here, verse four. Even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God chose us before the world even began. Talking about believers, he chose us before the world even began to do what? To be what? To be holy and blameless. It's incredible. That's what he's doing. You don't have to earn that. 
It's given to you. It's a given if you're a believer. You're chosen. You want to know what your purpose is? Here it is. He just tells you. This is your purpose. He's given you an identity. He's given you a place to belong. He's given you all of that right there. You didn't ask for it. He gave it to you. Then notice the next verse. In love, he predestined us for the adoption to himself. Before the founders of the world, he chose you. And he adopted you. And it says adoption as sons, children, through Jesus Christ. Notice what it says. According to the purpose of his will. Not according to my will. It wasn't like God looked down time and said, ooh, that guy might choose me. I'm going to choose him. Because then it would be accordance to our will. This is solely in him, in the mind of God. It's according to his will. That's what he consulted. It was himself. But just think of this. I didn't have to ask to be adopted. I didn't have to put up some poster saying, will you adopt me, please, sir? It happened. I'm a child of God. This is what happens to me in Christ. How is that possible? This only is possible with a sovereign God. A God who has power and authority, and this is what he does, and he lavishes on us. He doesn't ask for anything. He just says, this is who you are now. This is you. You are a child. I adopted you. You're mine. Notice the next thing. It says in verse 6, it says, To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Meaning, meaning that, that as, as we, th- this is all for God's glory. And this is all happening according to God's glorious grace. And he has blessed us because of what Jesus Christ has done. And it says in verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our sins and trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, to which he sets forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Incredible. Because of the sovereign God, and as he works on the believer, notice that we're redeemed through the blood of Jesus, and I have forgiveness of sins. He does that because of Jesus. Not only that, but then we, we get this insight to what God's doing. And what's he doing? He's summing up all things, all things under Christ. And and all things that are happening and all things that are working on right now during this age is all summing up to that one time where Jesus Christ will take the throne. How does that happen? Is it because God's a really good chess player? No. It's because he's sovereign and he's causing all these things to work together. What a scary reality it would be to wake up and think, God plays chance or dice with my life and your life. He just goes, let's see what happens. Let's roll the dice. I'm feeling like a little bit of randomness this afternoon. What a scary, what a scary prospect. Now, there's other passages that talk about God's love towards the believer. Let's go to another one. Let's go to Romans, right? And really all I want to focus on this morning is God's attribute. Next week we'll talk a little bit about 
how this works with man's free will. But let's not think about that for a moment. Let's just think of, let's just glory in what the Bible has to say about God's attribute. Let's just think about him, right? Not necessarily how my will works in light of his sovereignty. Let's just, let's just stop and just gander and be amazed at the sovereignty of God in the way that God describes himself. And part of this, God's sovereignty, is even in the life of the believer. And as he works in the believer. So in chapter 9, the Apostle Paul is talking about the gospel. And one of the questions that we could ask in Romans 9 is, why, why is the gospel now going to the Gentiles when it doesn't appear that the kingdom has come to, to the Jews? Like, there's no earthly kingdom. What happened? Did God fail? Like, like, did the word of God fail? What about that promise that he made to Israel? Now all of a sudden the gospel is going to the Gentiles? What's going on? And so the Apostle Paul is explaining the gospel and, and, and why the gospel goes out to the Gentiles in light of that question of, did God fail the Jews? And so that, that's the answer he's giving, right? So, so, so in this, then notice in verse 6 of chapter 9, it says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all those who are descending from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are the children of Abraham because they are the offspring. Meaning, just because you're born with Jewish blood doesn't necessarily make you Jewish, right? There has to be this aspect of faith. And it says, and then notice what he says in verse 7, Not all the children of Abraham because they are not, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Right, so realize his argument. Abraham's has lots of children, but it's only through the people of Isaac, right? Because there was this promise. So verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but it is the children of promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About a year time, next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. Now that's an important phrase. He didn't have to write that, but he did. Why did Paul write that? Do you think we're stupid and we can't figure that out? He's making a point to remind you about the next statement. It is not on the basis of the children that's what's going to be said next. They weren't born. They hadn't done anything yet. It's a reminder. It's a reminder. And notice what he says. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told that the the older will serve the younger, as is written, Jacob I've loved and Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible? The promise of God does not depend on human will or human exertion, but on what? God himself and the ability of his sovereignty to choose these things. 
Now, Paul goes into this really dark part of sovereignty, and this kind of deals with what we're talking about in Proverbs 21, because I'm sure that some of you, when you read that thing about, wait, God controls the heart of a king? What do you do when there's a bad king? Does that mean that God's the author of sin? Does that mean that God causes all the bad things of that king? Paul, Paul kind of deals with this here, knows what he says. He says in verse 17, For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, for this, for, this, uh, for this very purpose I raised you up, so that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. So Paul's explanation is, look, even Pharaoh is part of God's sovereign plan. He has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Some people might read that and go, well, does that mean that God goes into the heart of somebody and says, takes out like some sort of gene and says, you can't be obedient now. Hardened. There you go. Now you're never going to be obedient. Is that, is that, is that what we, how we understand this? No. Paul's already explained this reality of hardening of hearts in Romans chapter 1. You've got to realize, God didn't create the world corrupted. He didn't, he didn't create man originally to be sinful. Adam and Eve were created innocent. But Adam and Eve, when they sinned, guess what happened? Corruption happened. Sinfulness happened. That sinful desire happened. And that, that depravity happened. And that depravity as that push that we have naturally towards those things that are against God and what God desires. And, and, and that, that's, that's pushing, and that's pushing, and that's pushing. It's always pushing. And there are times where God allows someone to push and push and push, and he does nothing to restrain it. It's like having a dog that wants to go after something it's not supposed to. It's on the leash. It's on the leash. It's on the leash. And you go, have it. Have it. It's bad for you. It's going to hurt you. But you want it so bad. Have it. That's the idea. He lets him go into that sin. That's the hardening of the heart. God allows them to do this. Now, God allowed Pharaoh to mistreat his people, the people of promise, Why? Here Paul says, for the reason of that my name, God's name, might be proclaimed. The honor and glory of God. Now, that's really difficult. Especially if we've been on the wrong end of this. And we look at some of the things that God has allowed humans to do to other humans. And we go, how can a good, powerful God allow this? That's tough. That's tough. We wrestle with that. Christians have always wrestled with that. We're not the first to wrestle with that. But what we do know is that God, the things that he allows, he allows for a purpose, for the honor and glorification of him. And in the midst of that, he does offer something incredible to even those people who suffer. He offers himself. That's an incredible thing that he does. He offers himself. Not only that, but, but God did not even leave himself immune to this. Remember when Jesus died on the cross and then Peter preached that first sermon? What did he say? He said, Christ was crucified according to God's predetermined plans. You did it and God did it. Suffering, injustice, all that comes together in the cross. God allowed it. And, and there's, would any one of us 
start crying, crying injustice because we're saved, because God allowed that to happen. Of course, that was part of his plan. That was plan A, wasn't plan B, and we're recipients of that glorious thing. So some of us probably still have some issues with this. Paul doesn't stop here. So then, verse 19, he says, So you will say to me, why then does he still find fault? For who can resist his will, right? I mean, if he just hardens who he wants, and he loves who he wants, he hates who he wants, well, then who can resist him? Gotta love Paul's response, verse 20. But who are you? Who are you? What, you have some great discerner of justice? You have some great idea of the cosmic plan of everything that's going on in everyone's life all around the world? You know that? You have this meter inside of you that is absolutely good, and you love goodness as much as God does even more, to the point that you can then stand above God as a judge saying, that's not fair, God, what you're doing. We get the right to do that? Who are we to even question anything that God does? Who are we to even say, that's fair, that's not fair? The only idea that I know of fairness comes from God himself. So how can I judge his fairness and, and, and what's unfair? Who are, who are we? Who, who are we to even, to even say, God, that doesn't seem like you? That's what Paul's saying. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will not the molder have the right to, this, to uh, say to its molder, or the, what is molded, excuse me, what is molded to say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has not the potter... Uh, right over the clay to use for one a vessel of honorable use and for another dishonorable use. I was thinking about Chuck's guitar. By the way, if you didn't know this, Chuck built this guitar from scratch. I think it's beautiful. Very beautiful. Could you imagine as Chuck was routing out some of the wood, the wood saying to Chuck, why are you doing this? Who are you to do this to me? Do you know where I come from? You know what kind of tree I was? You know how old I am? And then for him then to cut out certain pieces of the parts of the wood and throw some of it away. Use some of it to draw on. Could you imagine the wood, the flame maple, saying to Chuck that he used as scrap to draw on? Why are you drawing on me? I would make a beautiful, a beautiful veneer over the guitar. I'd make it sing. Why, why, why'd you use that other part? Why not me? What right does any part of that wood have to go up to Chuck and say, how dare you use me like this? How dare you build me like this? What right does the guitar have to say to Chuck, why'd you put, why'd you put Seymour Duncans in the other guy and you put P90s in me? What right? What right does it have? Absolutely none. None. So notice in verse 22, what if God desires to show his wrath and to make known his power as endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for its destruction? Now, this word for prepared, it's important to know that it, the sense is that it's preparing itself, that, that, that God's turned it over and that it's pursued its own wickedness. Verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for his glory, even us whom he has called. Who are we to say, 
God, you can't do that. God, you can't do that. You can't, you, you can't, you can't have this parentheses of the church after you promised Israel all this stuff. You can't offer all this grace and mercy to the Gentiles. Who are we to answer back to God? Now, it's amazing, as we're still thinking about the sovereignty of God, did you know that God is sovereign as he works in the hearts of the Egyptians? He's sovereign in the hearts that he works in David, as we saw in Pharaoh, in Nebuchadnezzar. God put it in Nebuchadnezzar's heart to invade Jerusalem, put it in Nebuchadnezzar's heart to go down and destroy Egypt. Go with me to one last passage, Proverbs 16. Remember this one? The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. He is sovereign. He is sovereign, sovereign, sovereign over us. It's incredible, absolutely incredible how sovereign he is. So the question is, what do we do with a text like this? I know this is a difficult concept. I know that this asks a lot of questions, and I know that I have probably done very little to answer those questions, and some of that's on purpose. I know I kind of want you to wrestle with it all week. I got to wrestle with it this week. You get to wrestle with it this week. That's okay. That's good. It's good to wrestle with some of these things. It's good, it's good to deal with some of these things. It's good to go back to the scripture and search out some of these things. But I know it's, I, I know it's difficult. I know it's, I know it's hard. I, I know that there's some implications that, that make us really uncomfortable, really uncomfortable. But a wise person never claims to know it all. I don't know it all. There's still issues, and I still have questions and tensions. I know what the scriptures say, and I still have tensions. A wise person has those tensions. But a wise person, in asking the question, why should I submit to the Lord, and you see what was just said, a wise person goes, what's the alternative? To cross a God like this? To be rebellious to a God this powerful? That's not an option. That's not, that's not prudent. What does, what does a wise person do? A wise person takes this, lets the scripture speak for itself, takes what the scripture says and says, that is true. I don't understand the ins and outs, but I know it's true. I know it's true that God's sovereign. I don't know how, I just know he is. And when I'm making decisions and things happen in life and I'm making a decision, I'm fighting temptation, which way do I go? Do I follow God or do I not? The, the, the sovereignty of God should be one of those attributes that you think about and you go, you know what? It's better for me to choose the right thing because this is who God is. This is how powerful he is. When things are going on, and it's easy to get scared because of things that are happening. There's a lot of things happening in this world right now. A lot of things that some of us have never seen before. Really easy to get scared that the whole world's going to blow up in an atomic cloud. A wise person goes, yeah, but God is sovereign. What are they going to do to me? I'm protected by an all-powerful, almighty, sovereign God. There is nothing that they can do. 
There is nothing that is happening that God has not already foreseen. And this sovereign God, who already knows what's going to happen because he's planned it, has written a book that he knew I would need and gave me principles that he knew I would need. And as a great sovereign, loving communicator, he communicates principles for me to glean so that when I'm in that situation, this sovereign God will use those things to help me to continue to trust him, rely on him, and say, you got it. Help me be obedient in the midst of it. Calm my heart while I'm here. Help me walk by faith. Help me walk by the power of the Spirit. Help me me be what you you want me to be and what you call me to be in Christ. That's what a wise person does. Doesn't understand all of it. But he understands this enough to say, okay, world's crazy. God still got this. Not only that, the world's crazy. He's still got this. And at the end of the book, since he's got it and he's planned it, he will win. Might not look like he's winning. Oh, but he's working. And he will win. Right? He will. Because he's sovereign. He's not playing, he's not playing board games. He's planned this out. And I can trust it. I can trust it more than I know my own name because I know his character. May the Lord give us the will and the ability to all that we heard today. Let's go ahead and let's pray. Dear gracious Father, we are so very thankful that you've revealed to us this truth about yourself, that you are in control. You are in absolute control. You are absolutely sovereign. Thank you so much for revealing this to us. Thank you for repeating this fact over and over and over again. And Father, will you continually bring this attribute to our minds as we go throughout this week because we are prone to forget that you are in charge. We are prone to forget that you are bigger and powerful and you have planned all of this. Will you help us? Will, you, will, will your spirit help us be mindful of this truth that we find in your word? I am so very thankful that you've revealed this. I'm so very thank you, thank you for my brothers and sisters. And Father, as we wrestle over you and as we try to learn more and more about you and grow in knowledge of your grace and knowledge of your character will you please be kind to us and 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 help us find those answers on and rest on you even if we don't have those answers we're so very thankful we continue to pray for uh the schultz family and we continue to pray for some of the family members with with uh with some illnesses, and we think of Mark's brother. Uh, we just ask for healing for him. Uh, we're so very thankful, Father, that you also brought back uh, our, our Bible college students. And, Father, I pray that, the, that the, this year, this past year, was a great time of learning, a great time of opening up your word to them, that they may know your word, that they may know you, and that they grew in their relationship with you. And thank you for bringing them back. We're excited of what you have planned for us in the future, and we we just can't wait to see what you will do. We say this in your son's name. Amen.